Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 116, the Blood on the Saddle LP, Fresh Blood. And you said it last episode, Brent, it's a one and done for SST. It's our first time getting to Blood on the Saddle, and it's their only album for the label. But there's a lot of, uh, of history, and uh, our special guest gets into that too. Yeah, we've got Greg Davis on the podcast today. It's a great interview. Yeah, like getting into the history of New Alliance, L.A., um, this genre of music, some great stories about like the Gun Club, for example, and great stories about Blood on the Saddle. So we're really to ha- happy to have uh, Greg on and people should check that out. Yeah. Um, I'm still reeling from the last episode because I can't believe on the Ifin record, A, I forgot to mention the Dead Wax and B, I forgot. Pro- this is probably the most sacrilegious of all i forgot to mention the john fogarty reference on the b-side of the of the lp yeah i think it even says in the liner notes clp label or something like that like they think john fogarty or something i'm surprised i didn't get a pink slip from you after that episode well you, you it's on the record now man it happens since we're on the subject i messed up a little bit too actually i think i've seen this video before but i I don't think I realized uh, what our friend Jeff Shrek pointed out today, and that's that um, it's a different mix. Did you see that at all, Ryan? The Jeff posted on our Facebook page a video for the the Firehose song "Hear Me." Oh yeah, no, I didn't see that. You have would... to, you have to. It's a different. It's clearly a different mix of I knew the backing about that. track, and then it's a different vocal from Ed. Completely different. Yeah, where's that from, I wonder? Nowhere. Yeah. Ed, if you're out there, help us out, man. We'll find out. We'll find oh, out, yeah. but it's it's definitely worth a listen. Cool. That's a good uh, supplemental spiel as well, man. Good one. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. Hey, I just have a micro spiel before we get into Blood on the Saddle. Can I, can I hit you with that real quick? Yeah. Okay, man. Last week, I think it was a box set update, right? And then uh, the week before, I think it was a one-spot fringe head update. This week is a Shiner update. Do you know the band Shiner, Brandt? I know the band Shining. Nope, Shiner. Okay. Okay, so this this band Shiner, kind of a 90s band, but I'm, I've always been a big fan. Um, they put out a record called Splay on DeSoto which is Kim Coletta and Bill Barbett's uh, label, those, you know, from Jawbox. Right, yeah. Um, they put out a record called Lula Divinia, another record called Starless on owned and operated records, Brent. There's an SST tie in there. Yep, Bill Stevenson. Um, another record called The Egg. Anyways, um, Shiner's kind of, I guess they're described as like a post-hardcore band from Kansas City, a 90s band. I'm a big fan and I really like uh, this style of music. It actually kind of reminds me of, you know, there was this other other band from about that time frame called Hum, yep, which I know uh, them, yeah, quite like them. And the guy Alan Epley from Shiner went on to a, another band that's similar sounding, different but similar, called The Life and Times. They've got a, a record called Suburban Hymns on Desoto as well. Uh, Life and Times have put out. 
a number of records and I think they're still active. Other members of the Shiner Life and Times family were also in a band called Season to Risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, Guys, Josh Newton and Paul Malinowski. Anyways, Shiner has got a new record coming out. It's like their first one since, I believe, 2004, Mm. something like that. It's just insane that they're putting out a record. It kind of reminds me of uh, 2001, sorry, was their last album called The Egg. This new album is called, I think it's pronounced Schadenfreude, and it's on Two Black Eyes Records, coming out May the 8th. People should check that out. If you like any of the stuff that I mentioned, I'm super pumped. Shiner is back. I mean, they've been playing reunion shows over the years because they're still all active, these members, but those uh, those four Shiner records got such heavy rotation for me back in the day, and I'm going to dial those up again and get ready for Schadenfreude in May. Check it out. Cool. Yeah, man. And then while you're at it, Ryan, you can check out the band The Shining. <laughs> I was I was thinking of, of you, actually, because I was reading that book, uh, Cross Over the Edge, on the train today. Oh, yeah. And I was like, man, I really don't like this type of music. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an interesting read, all the same. Here, I'll give you some recommends, Ryan, of stuff you do like. And it's going to be a little bit of a challenge, because I'm going to see... I'm going to... I I wanted to recommend something that I thought maybe you would really like that hopefully you haven't heard. Okay. Because you recommended to me one spot Fringehead, who I really like. So there's the the 1990... Whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second. This might be the first, if not maybe the second time ever that I've recommended something that you like on the show, though. (laughs) Let me let me drink this in for a moment. I wouldn't go that far. You've recommended other stuff to me. They're they're killer, hey. Yeah, they're really good. Uh, so I checked out the self-titled album, 1994, on Merkin Records. That's the one. Very 90s indie rock. Uh, they're from Laurel, Maryland. I'm not sure if you mentioned that. Ryan, are you aware of the singer Dave Ort's other band? They're called the Commonwealth directly prior to looks like anyways directly prior to one spot fringe head yep they're good oh yeah yeah dave's a cool dude man he's the guy who uh he sent me their latest their latest disc people should go pick it up it's deadly yeah it's just an ep right um this new album is uh it's a six song i guess it's an ep yep so yeah and then there's the another ep mlcc or songs from the MLCC. Yep. EP. It's it's good too. I haven't heard the that one you just mentioned the difference between yet, but I'm definitely going to check that out. Okay, so Ryan, I know you're not big on the streaming services or whatever, but the way I see it is like, you know, for me a lot of this stuff it's like checking a band out on Bandcamp, right? It's the same thing. If it's good, I'm going to buy it. So I'm listening to one spot actually today on Spotify and it'll recommend other things to you that you might like. And it, it recommended to me this Morpheus singles series compilation. Yep. Do you know Morpheus records? I don't, I don't know this one. Okay. So here are the bands that are on there, Ryan, and you would like all of these bands. These are all, all of these bands on this label Morpheus sound like shellac jawbox fugazi the jesus lizard all the bands that you like okay one spot is on there 
with their seminate. This is a collection of singles that came out on this label. There's a band on there called Land Speed Record, Ryan. Oh, I like that name. Yeah, it's all one word, Land Speed Record. There's a band called Third Harmonic Distortion. Uh, one of the favorite, the ones I really liked on there was Lee Harvey Keitel Band. Awesome name. Lee Harvey Keitel. Yeah. <laughs> I know the Lee Harvey Oswald Band, which had Rick Sims in it, right? On Touch and Go. Yeah. So this, some of the stuff, like, I, I just listened to this today. So, but I I did briefly check it, check some of this out on Discogs. And that band, Lee Harvey Keitel Band, they put out an album on Ipecac. It's actually the second release on Ipecac. No way. Yeah. Keep them coming, man. Okay, there's a band on there called Haberdasher. Okay. There's a band on there called Butch. There's a band called Liquid. And then there's another band that I really liked called Blank. You would like all of this stuff. The compilation is called... It's not just called Morpheus Singles Series? Yeah, and then it's subtitled Concessions on Our Descent. And I looked it up on Discogs, and I think it must be a digital-only thing. Like, you might be able to buy it on iTunes or something. I didn't look, but... Oh, I see. Yeah. You would love all of these bands, man. Right on. Yeah. These are the recommends I came up with for you before this compilation that I wanted to give you in return for the one-spot fringe head. So I'm curious if you've you've heard of either of these bands. One's called Fine China Superbone. Oh, heck yeah. Okay. So you know that I've got all their stuff. There's a there's a CD and an LP. They're awesome. I thought I mentioned it in in my uh, my best of 2019, like as a an honorable mention. But you might have. Didn't. You might have. Yeah. This one came you know out. It came out in 2019. So, damn yep. it! I was like, oh, Ryan's gonna love this if he's never heard it. <laughs> okay. The other one is a band from Amsterdam called Katadroof. Oh, I don't know that one. Okay. It's K A. T-A-D-R-E-U-F-F-E. New album is called To Stop and Stare and Start Again. And you can find them on Bandcamp. Okay. What are they like? Uh, You know, like that stuff you like. (laughs) (laughs) The good stuff, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you mean. All these bands you like all sound like the Jesus Lizard to me. Oh, come on. <laughs> One Spot sounds like the Jesus Lizard to you? No, no. No, man. And check out Shiner, man. I can't believe you don't know Shiner. I didn't do a lot of the 90s indie rock stuff, man. Oh, I was man. all about the garage rock. You know that. Yeah, I know. I know. And I, I dabbled in garage rock, but I was, I still am 90s, 100%. Yeah. Okay, one more quick thing I have to spiel about, Ryan. I'm not sure if you saw this, but you'll like this for sure if you didn't. Rob Nesbitt from the band Bum has an album oh. out. Yeah. Did you double, see that? Double 12-inch, double right? Yeah, it's a double 12-inch. The project is called Sweet 16. He left the band Bum in 1993 following the release of their awesome album, Wanna Smash Sensation. This was oh. a real labor of love for him. Like, so many people worked on this album, mostly, like, people from that scene. David Carswell, who is in The Evaporators and with Nardwar, and he's in the, he was in The Smugglers. He engineered and mixed it at JCDC Studios, along with John Collins, 
who was in the evaporators and the new pornographers and destroyer graham watson played on it who was in bomb and the smugglers whole bunch of people it's really great power pop uh, 500 physical copies it's a triple gatefold package book but a 52 page book yeah yeah and the tunes are really good doesn't surprise me because bomb is just a killer band yeah great canadian victoria i think right victoria yep. bc power pop yeah you know another mostly 90s band i think but yeah often kind of grouped together with teen generate if i'm not mistaken yeah and the smugglers, smugglers. anyways it's called sweet 16 as in s-u-i-t-e s-i-x-t-e-e-n and there's a band camp and a facebook page and stuff yeah brant our friend graham bought it and was just gushing about how deadly it was. Yeah. I listened to the whole thing on Bandcamp and it's great. Yep. Yeah. Cool, man. Lots of recommends. Yep. See, this is this is why I don't have a streaming thing. Well not not the main <laughs> reason. Not the main reason, but it's part of it because I've only go I've only got so much cash, you know? Yeah. Should we uh get into blood on the saddle? Let's do it. I'm ready for some fresh blood. History lesson, part one. All right, Ryan, I have a history lesson here, but a lot of this stuff kind of references the interview a little bit. So I thought I would do this after the interview. Oh, we'll start with Greg, hey? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay, we're joined on the podcast today by Greg Davis. Greg, thanks for being on the podcast. Glad to uh, participate. Take me back, if you can, to yourself and your start playing music were you when you started playing guitar were you doing country music no my musical background was like any other southern californian in the 70s uh garage bands playing credence clearwater revival or uh deep purple or led zeppelin or almond brothers or whatever you know uh bluesy blues rock i guess would be the guitar heroes were uh, from the late 60s were my idols, and I was trying to emulate that. So I learned to play in Southern California. However, my professional career began in Atlanta, Georgia. I moved there as a teenager, specifically to imitate Dwayne Allman playing Southern rock with a Corsine bottle on my finger, you know, playing that. Yep. bluesy slide that Dwayne Allman invented. And so I spent 78 and 79 in Atlanta playing in different Southern rock bar bands, which was uh, quite a change for a California boy like me because the drinking age in California was 21 and it was 18 in the South. But the point is, is that I was living in the part of the country where the kind of music that inspired me originated from. And so I, even though I was an outsider, I did my best to get down and dirty with those people and learn from, in other words, I played Southern music with Southern musicians to a Southern audience before I literally ever even heard punk rock. I first heard the Sex Pistols album in Alabama, we stayed at some guitar player's house who was bold enough 
you know, he was a long-haired hippie guitar player, but he was bold enough to buy, never mind the Bullocks, just out of curiosity. And so we were all sitting around listening to it, thinking, wow, this is uh, this definitely isn't bad company, yeah. you know? <laughs> and however, being from California, I came back here in, in 80. Music was changing. And I moved to Hollywood in 81, and that opened up a whole new musical experience to me because it was uh, a period of musical ferment. There were all these bands playing a style of music that I didn't really like at first, and I was like making up my mind, thinking, you know... Uh, I'm not really getting anywhere looking to be in a band. And they asked me my major musical influence, and I say Dwayne Allman. <laughs> they just right. hang up with me. <laughs> so I thought, let me let me investigate this. You know, so I was going out and I was seeing these bands, and I was starting to see that punk rock was an artistic departure from what had gone before. However, there were bands who were on the fence. There were bands who were combining punk rock with previous American musical styles. I saw Gun Club open for the Cramps at the Roxy in April of 81. I was a political science major at UCLA at the time, and I went to the Roxy, and I'd never heard either of them or heard of them. And they blew my mind. I just didn't know music like that was possible. Yeah. And in particular, Gun Club covered a Robert Johnson song, Preach the Blues. At the time, the idea of using slide guitar in punk rock was revolutionary because slide guitar, at least from my experience, was played in blues rock, you know, in southern rock. And hearing them use it in a punk rock context changed my life. It was common in the 80s for people to say, well, I saw the Sex Pistols and it changed my life. I saw the Ramones, it changed my life. I saw Black Flag and it changed my life. And all that was legitimate. All that was true. I, I, I didn't see the Sex Pistols, but I, I saw these other bands. But for me in particular, Gun Club changed my life. They, they literally... Uh, and actually, I saw them two weekends in a row because one weekend they opened for the Cramps at the Roxy and the next weekend they opened for X. So I saw them twice in one week. And I really liked the music of the Cramps and I really liked the music of X. But to me, what Gun Club was doing was just mind-blowing. Just, And their execution was poor. Their musical idea was revolutionary, but their execution of it left a lot to yeah. be desired. Yeah. So then I had this idea, I'm not going to play Southern Rock anymore, and I'm not really a punk, I'm, I'm not, I, I had too much of a musical identity by that time to just throw all that away and just be a poser and a fake convert to punk rock, hell with that. But I saw what Gun Club did, and I thought, well, hell, my father was a carpenter from Arkansas. 
I was raised listening to country and western music. I had to go out on the job with him as a kid and carry lumber, and these rednecks would be blasting country and western radio all day long. So I grew up hearing Hank Williams and Johnny Cash and early 60s radio guys like Merle Haggard and so forth. And I didn't really like it. I think it was because the the themes they were singing about, I was too young to appreciate. Yeah. When you're young, you, you don't know what heartbreak is. You know, you, you, you find that out later. But in my usual long-winded way, the point I'm trying to get at is that if if it is your or anyone else's intention to give Blood and Saddle any credit, it has to be made very clear that we would not have existed had it not been for Gun Club. It was seeing them that expanded my mind. And I realized, well, if I'm going to be in Hollywood and I'm going to try to compete with these people, uh, being a Dwayne Allman imitator ain't going to work. Right. Having um, having a musical idea is is what's going to get me noticed, so to speak. So that's when I came up with this idea. Well, I'll just try to do what X had done by perverting rockabilly, and Gun Club had done by perverting Delta Blues. That I would do the same with country and western and bluegrass, so to speak. And I met a girl who exposed me to a style of music that I had not previously been aware of, which was 50s female rockabilly singers. So that expanded my mind, and she could sing like a bird. And she was in a uh, popular or, or getting popular 60s band, which whose music, uh, to put it mildly, I didn't think much of. So I said, hell with all this. And I went back down to the South, and this would be like 82. And I went to New Orleans, and I had a dobro, and I lived in the French Quarter, and this banjo player taught me how to play bluegrass, and we would stand on Bourbon Street with our guitar cases open. And this guy taught me all these bluegrass standards, and I'm playing dobro. And I noticed that, well, bluegrass is fast, just like punk rock. Right. And then after a few months of that, I said, well, I'll I'll go check out Nashville. And Nashville was a pretty miserable, depressing place. This was 82, the Reagan Depression. People were poor and desperate. But I checked out the music. I'd go out to the bars and listen to bands all the time. So then I came back to Hollywood and uh, found that female singer that I mentioned and some other musicians and said, this is what I want to do. I want to do a style of music that's a fusion of punk rock and bluegrass, and but that has a folk element and um, try to strip mine some folk songs and turn them into punk rock. An example being the song, I Wish I Was a Single Girl Again. So just to back it up so you, for a minute, the, the female singer you're talking about, I'm assuming, is Annette. And the the additional mu- musicians, right off the bat, was it Ron and Herman? Or were there some other people in at the beginning? What you just said is correct. Okay. How did you hook up with Ron and Herman? I was in a punk rock band called Dead Hippie. 
in Hollywood in 1981. And I was in the rehearsal studio we rehearsed at called Cole Rehearsal. And so I was wandering down the hall and I had a can of beer or maybe two. And I heard a band doing a punkabilly version of Hey Good Looking. And I stood outside the door and I listened to it. And I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. And so I knocked on the door and asked them if I could come in if I gave them a beer. So they said, well, that, that works for us. <laughs> it turned out it was the guitar player from the Gears playing with a drummer, but not the drummer from the Gears. It was Herman. Okay. And I had seen the Gears open for X, and I loved the Gears. They they played a style that was then called punkabilly. And so I went in, and I gave Herman a beer, and I sat in the room and listened to them play Hey Good Looking. So I said to Herman, well, I play guitar, and I, I like what you guys are doing, and, you know, maybe we could try to get together and play some music. And I, I probably mentioned that I had a girlfriend who could sing like a bird. I, I, I might have mentioned that. Yep. However, it didn't really lead to anything yet. And then I went, like I said, I went back down to the south. I lost touch with Herman when I was in New Orleans, when I was in Nashville. And when I came back, you know, then I tried to find him. But... Uh, the person whose name I'm not going to mention, her band was getting more and more successful playing 60s pop music, but she wasn't happy because, one, she was only playing bass instead of singing, and so that pissed me off. You know, if you've got... If you're in love with somebody and you see other people doing them wrong you want to do something about it. And then when they started going on tour, then I'd just sit in my apartment and cry. And then I really was determined to do something about it. And so eventually Herman says, well, I've got this friend who plays the upright bass. And so when the band whose name I won't mention was on tour... I started rehearsing with Ron and Herman and working up a repertoire. And then we started gigging. And all this was going on while she was away on tour. And so she comes back and suddenly her boyfriend is gigging, playing a kind of poor man's version of gun club you know mm -hmm. and so she thought hmm maybe i should get up and start singing some songs you know so she starts getting up on stage and singing like with johnny cash june carter duet stuff you know and then the band whose name i won't mention they get word of this and they don't like it they're possessive and they don't want their cute little bass player singing in their red and her redneck boyfriend's band. Right. Of course they didn't like that. So 
summer of 83, they were about to get signed to CBS, and they go over to her house on a Sunday morning, catch her by surprise. I think we had played the night before, and she had gotten up and done a few songs for us. And they caught her on a Sunday morning at her parents' house in the valley and gave her an ultimatum. And they said, quit fooling around in your boyfriend's band. He's an ignorant hick. And play with us because we're going to get signed and we're going to get rich and famous. And so a big argument ensued in the household between the three principal members of the unmentionable band and my girlfriend's mother, father, and sister. Hmm. And the three unmentionables and the mother and father were all in favor of her sticking with them and signing and being successful. And her sister, bless her heart, said, no, you have a beautiful voice. Your boyfriend loves you. He has a band. I've seen them play. He, he wants you to play with him. And if you do so, you will sing. And so she made her decision. And, she, and at the time, I think my phone was turned off from lack of funds. So she drives over to my apartment and, and tells me what just happened. So I instantly say, let's go to the rehearsal studio right now and grab all the gear that Miles Copeland bought you and bring it back to my apartment and sell it so that you can get some money out of this. Because now that you're out of the band, they're just going to fuck you over financially. We hop in my El Camino, we go to the rehearsal studio, and lo and behold, who's there? Jeanette Napolitano, who later became famous in Concrete Blonde. Are you familiar yep. with their music? Yeah, I am, yeah. Right. Obviously, they had anticipated that Annette was going to say no. Two, they had lined up Johnette as a potential replacement. And three, they had Johnette at the rehearsal studio to specifically tell the people that ran the place not to let Greg and Annette pick up Annette's gear. You know, as like a severance package, right. so to speak, although people didn't use that word at the time. Anyway, so that mission failed. Let's talk about the first album, Blood on the Saddle. How did you get hooked up with New Alliance Records? What happened was we started playing on Bills with the Minutemen, and I had been going in a recording studio, songs that were to end up on that album, but it wasn't because I had any idea that I would ever be able to make a record to go on tour. Believe me, that was that was unimaginable to me. Right. All I wanted to do was record a few songs and take them to Rodney on the Rock so he would play them on his show on, on KROQ. Because when I had been in Dead Hippie, we had taken songs to Rodney and he'd play them. And Annette, you know, Rodney used to play her band. So that was as far as my ambition went at that time. And we started playing on bills with the Minutemen and Social Distortion, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, the Flesh Eaters, the Weapon, the Circle Jerks, you know, we started 
playing, the Joneses, bands. You know, we were on this compilation. We ended up being on this compilation album called How Comes Your House, Volume 2. So we had recorded a couple of songs that were about to come out on this compilation. And all this time, I was starting to develop more of like a musical rapport with D. Boone, unknown to people familiar with the Minutemen's music. D. Boone also had a redneck country music upbringing, just like I did. Right. So literally, D. Boone and me would sit around and play cowboy songs or Woody Guthrie songs or country and western songs or Red Belly songs like backstage at our gigs. And at Blood in the Saddle Minutemen shows, I'd bring an acoustic guitar and backstage, D. Boone and me would sit around playing folk music, you know, which was different than what we were actually about to go on stage and play. I literally remember the first time I ever met the guy. He walks backstage, picks up my guitar, and sings Red River Valley to me. Wow. I mean, who would think from all those Minutemen records that D. Boone could sing a mean Red River Valley, right? <laughs> who would think that? But I can tell you that he could, you know. I think if he so, would have lived, he probably would have would have done, you know, some more stuff in that direction. It was kind of, I think, headed that way by the, the final Minutemen album, maybe, a little bit. Well, all musicians have, like, their background music that they play when they just sit around playing. And then they have, or maybe not all musicians, but all good musicians, have one kind of music that they sit around and play for their own enjoyment and another kind that they actually do professionally on stage in front of people for money. So this is not unusual that D. Boone was like this. But the reason I'm telling you this is because he's dead. Yeah. And he cannot tell his story, but I'm alive and I can. I knew the guy. I liked the guy. who's my friend. I was at his funeral. Mike Watt was more of the business part of New Alliance. D. Boone wasn't involved in the business as much of it. But getting back to what I was saying about these recordings that we were doing, both D. Boone and Mike Watt started coming to the studio and hanging out while we were recording what was to be our first album. Okay. Chris D. from the Flesh Eaters, I was roommates with his bass player at the time. So Chris D., became aware of our music. He worked at Slash Records. He was a singer in the Flesh Eaters, and his day job was working at Slash Records. Right. So he tried to get us signed to Slash Records, even though I knew we weren't musically developed enough at the time that the, for that really to be feasible. Okay. You know, I mean, I wasn't stupid. I mean, I, I was starting... See, when I started out, I had no ambition. I, I didn't know. I just wanted to be in a band. And then I started seeing one thing would lead to another and, and then more doors would open and then more possibilities would open up and all of it just blew my mind. I had no experience. And so Chris D came and he produced about half the songs on our first album as a demo for Slash, which Slash rejected, rightly so. They had X, Blasters, Gun Club, what they need us for, you know. Mm -hmm. My feelings weren't even hurt, you know. But we took that demo to Rodney on the Rock, and then he started playing it. And then we started getting better gigs. And Annette wasn't on it, 
the demo that Chris D produced was before Annette was in the band. Oh, I see. Then, lo and behold, then Dave Alvin gets involved. And because we started playing with the Blasters, you know? Right. And so our first album, while we were working on it, people who were an established, by my standards, and the guitar player from the Blasters, the singer from the Flesh Eaters, and two of the Minutemen were hanging out at our recording sessions, you know, right. like encouraging us, like saying, yeah, you know, this is this, what you guys are doing has some potential, you know. When did you first start hearing the term cowpunk? And is that, do you like that term? Is it accurate? Or does it kind of I annoy you? I was hoping that you <laughs> wouldn't mention that word. So if you could not mention it again, you'll have the answer yeah. to your question. That's fair. That's kind of the answer I expected anyways. None of the musicians on the scene who played a style like that had anything but utter contempt for that phrase. Yeah. And to this day, it's just despicable. Some stupid son of a bitch of a journalist would come up with such an unsexy word for a style of music. Yeah. Unbelievable. Songwriters learn the value of words. Journalists, I don't think much of as, as a general rule. But anyway, you, you get my point. Yeah. I, I, that term doesn't do a whole lot for me. I think journalists like to come up with these names, like, for example, the, the Paisley Underground or whatever, which I've also heard members of that so-called scene, you know, say that they're, they're not fans of. I think to, like, group bands together that are similar musically and playing a lot of shows together. So I think that's, that's kind of why that happens, but I understand why the artists right. involved it's, don't it's like it. It serves a purpose. It serves a purpose, and obviously I experienced the Paisley Underground firsthand because I was at my girlfriend's gig seeing all those, I saw all those bands, I knew all those people. Yeah. I don't remember them being as hostile to that term as the bands like Lone Justice and Rank and File and Blood on the Saddle being hostile to the term we got saddled with. But I can't speak for them. By the time this album comes out and then a couple of years later, the, the second album comes out, Poison Love, you are playing with a lot of these kinds of rootsier bands, though, that you just mentioned, like uh, Rank and File, Tex and the Horseheads. There's definitely like a scene starting to develop. That was there from the very beginning. From the very beginning, we, we played with all those bands. I don't know how many times we played with Frank and File or the Blasters or Los Lobos or Lone Justice or Texan Horses or Social D or... What about when you started touring? Um, like, what kind of bands were you getting paired up with on tour? Once in a while on tour, we might play with another band from Los Angeles. We played with Frank and File in Nashville. We played with the Blasters in Austin. We played with Gun Club in Las Vegas. I mean, but we never toured either as an opening act or as an, the main act 
within the other Los Angeles band. It was just random. Like, I remember one time playing with Green on Red in, like, Lafayette, Louisiana, or playing with the Horseheads in New Jersey, or just, but I was all random. Normally, when we started touring America, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, we would just play with whatever the local bands were who were doing something vaguely resembling what we were doing. And on that subject, I want to make something clear to someone whose perspective is geographically removed from this, like yours is. Sure. In Los Angeles, during this time period, X and the Blasters were very successful in their careers in the Los Angeles area. But the Cramps and the Gun Club did not get near the media attention or the music industry acceptance or the general popularity or the journalists lavishly heaping praise on them. So I didn't know any better and I thought well maybe the same thing holds true in the rest of the country or in other countries that is until I started playing in the rest of the country and in other countries and I realized the exact opposite was true hmm. that X and the Blasters got all this credit in Los Angeles and Gun Club and the Cramps didn't get as much but as soon as you went to Chicago or Berlin or Paris or London or New Orleans, every opposite was true. Yeah. Gun Club and the Cramps were gods in Europe. A lot of bands did better in Europe, for sure, than they did stateside, it seems. Bands like the Gun Club. I'm just trying to make the point that my perspective was limited as long as I stayed in the L.A. area about how successful certain bands were. And as soon as we got out of Los Angeles, we saw that that was not the case. For example, we we never played on bills with X imitator bands or Blasters imitator bands, and we played with Gun Club or Cramps imitator bands all the time. Yeah. The further we got away from Los Angeles, and particularly in Europe, like like you realize, rank and file never toured Europe. There was there was no interest in their music because it was too conservative. They toured England for six weeks as an opening act for Elvis Costello when Elvis Costello did his almost blue album. And you know who was the guitar player in the band at the time? You know this famous Texas guitar player, Junior Brown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. He's an him. awesome guitar picker. Yep. You know him referring to yeah he plays the the guitar that's got a pet like a lap steel attached to it Get steel yeah get steel right he yeah. Goes, right yeah yeah awesome player play the guy can play circles around me he's an awesome player and i don't say that about a whole lot of guitar players but it definitely is true in his case yeah he's great he was the guitar player in rank and file when they toured england oh. opening for elvis costello Let's talk about the Fresh Blood album. Do you do you remember recording it at Radio Tokyo? I believe you recorded it in January of 87. 
that's a simplified version of it. We had been working on it at Radio Tokyo a little bit before that. Okay. We had done Rawhide for a French compilation album there, and the Frenchman paid us more money than we needed to do just Rawhide. So I said, well, let's just lay down some other songs. And then we toured Canada at Christmas time in 87. Oh, yeah. And then when we came back, then we finished it up. So, so, so basically, Fresh Blood was recorded in the last month or two of 86 and the first month or two of 87. And just to simplify it, we just said January 87. How'd you end up getting hooked up with SST? We played on bills with SST bands all the time. We were always playing with the Meat Puppets or the Minutemen or Swa. There was numerous times when we'd play on bills where every band on the bill was on SST except us. Okay. So it was just logical that we would just end up being on SST. I mean, it was just, it was a, it was a logical development. And SST bands normally used Ethan James' studio. And what happened was another engineer then got involved because I was disgusted with working with Ethan and he didn't like our music. And so he brought in another engineer named Dan Natovina and he rescued the record. I see. He, he got involved and he took the band seriously. He took the music seriously and he, and he kind of took over Ethan's role and improved the record tremendously. The reason the second album, which I, I noticed you're avoiding completely, the reason it was so bad was because our managers ruined it. Hmm. They went out of their way to, they literally forbid us to record any songs of me singing and only wanted songs of Annette singing and only wanted pop country songs. Oh, okay. Have you noticed the difference? Have you ever heard our second album? I have, yeah. I I don't didn't necessarily pick that out, and I, I wasn't I certainly wasn't avoiding it intentionally, but it, well, I would I would yeah. because it sucks, and it's because of our stupid fucking managers. They didn't know anything about music. They thought Annette's voice was their meal ticket to a major label deal so that they could get money, and ruined the best song on the third album, Hole in My Pocket, which I believe I sent you a message saying that it was Dan Matavina's and Mai's remake of the basic tracks to that song that salvaged the song, and that's what's now up on streaming services. If you go to Spotify or Pandora or YouTube, you can hear the version of it that was supposed to be on the record instead of the insipid drivel that our managers insisted to use because of my old girlfriend's voice being on it, and they were just morons. I just can't even stand to listen to that version of the song. It just makes me want to scream. It's so bad. So just to be clear, is it a different mix, or is it a completely different recording? Same basic tracks. Lead vocal and harmony vocal were redone by me, higher pitched, okay. and... I sang harmony to myself 
as opposed to Annette singing harmony to me. But the guitar, bass, and drums are the same. So it's same same basic tracks, different lead vocal, different mix. Are we clear? Yeah. What about the extra track on the digital release, Julie? Is that that's from the same session, I'm assuming? Correct. And that was a song that got left off the original version of Fresh Blood, not because of the stupidity of our managers, but because there were some technical flaws in it from the recording machine. The You know, in the old day, 24-track machines, sometimes they'd speed up or slow down, which would alter the pitch. Right. And so there's, there were some flaws in it. And Dan and me... That was that's another song that was Dan and Me's baby. Ron and Herman played bass and drums. I think it got left off the record because there were some technical reasons with the variability of the recording machine, which then fooled with the pitch. But somehow Dan was able to salvage a version of it where you can't really tell, and that's the one that now is up on the digital re-release of that album. And I'm glad because uh, I think the song's okay. It's a good song, yeah. And I noticed the sequencing is different also on the digital version. I'm assuming that was done intentionally? That was Dan's idea, and I argued against it. Oh, I see, okay. There's a part of this that has been left out, and that is that this engineer slash producer who came in and saved the Fresh Blood album. His name is Dan Matavina. Yeah. He's the guy responsible for the decent version of Hole in My Pocket and Julie. Right. I hadn't seen the guy in 30 years and he showed up at one of our gigs a couple years ago and said, hey, remember me? And I said, yeah, didn't we work on Fresh Blood together back at the dawn of time? Yeah. And he said, yeah, and I'd like to work with you again. And so he's now the one responsible for the digital uploads of the first, second, third, fifth, and eighth albums. And I'm waiting for the ninth to come up any day. I see. It should be on streaming services in any any day now. He's now my business partner, and he's a damn good uh, technician. He's excellent at remastering and editing. So I, I don't agree with it. I don't agree with the streaming services sequencing of Fresh Blood, but he had his reasons for doing what he thought was right and it's not terrible let me ask you about a track that i really like on the album called endless highway it's one that you play solo on the album did you do that live like that just you no live herman and me sang the first verse slow lonesome cowboy style and he sang a little harmony on it herman was an excellent uh harmony singer and then we would kind of pick up the pace and play it the rest of the song a little faster. Mm-hmm. And we fooled around with different arrangements of it over the years. 
And what happened was that as Fresh Blood was being recorded, the band was disintegrating. And we only had eight songs. Right. And so what I did was I went in with Ethan, not with Dan, with Ethan, and I said, I want to do two solo songs. I want to do Baptist Church Blues Part 1, and I want to do Endless Highway. You mentioned that the band so, was the band was falling apart. I, I'm not sure if this is accurate, but I saw this listed as coming out in November of 87, which is quite a ways away from when it was recorded. Was that's it, not correct. It not. came out in September. Was the band still together when it came out? No, we had broken up six months before. So the world doesn't necessarily know that that record came out long after the band had broke up. And of the principals at SSC, I had the most personal relationship with Chuck Dukowski. Again, I did some, but it was Dukowski that I had a warmer relationship with. Right. And I remember one time I... When Blood and the Cell broke up, I had a, I started a band called The Drivers, and Dukowski was doing SWA because he wasn't in Black Flag anymore. And so SWA and The Drivers would play on bills together often, usually, you know, with other SST or New Alliance bands. So, you know, I would talk to Dukowski, I would talk to him. And I, one time I had to fess up and you know, this was after the SST deal was done, after the record had been turned in, it was finished, it was going to be released, and I had to face him, and I said, you know, the band broke up, hmm. and so we can't tour to support the record, and he said, Greg, we're okay with it, we like the music, and we're going to put it out anyway. So, bless his heart, bless his heart you know. I, re I really have a very high regard for his musical ability, incredible amount of respect for his time in Black Flag. I personally really like his bass playing. Yeah, it's awesome. And I like him. Yeah. So he he was the one who said, don't worry, we're going to release it anyway because we believe in the music. Did the drivers record anything? Yes. Was it, like, officially released? We did an EP for a label called Bomp mm -hmm. Records, which was a does that name mean anything to you? Yeah, Greg Shaw, yep. Correct, he's yeah. now deceased, you're yeah. aware of this. Yeah. We did an e the Drivers did an EP for Bomp, seven songs, and I didn't like his release schedule. It wasn't going to be released for six months, so I backed out of the deal mm. and said, no, I, I, I don't want to do I don't want to wait that long. I don't want to do this. We also recorded at least another 10 songs under the name The Drivers. And I took that record to Enigma Records and to SST. Oh, okay. And they both expressed a willingness to release it. However, Greg Ginn felt that the name The Drivers was kind of generic. And he said he was afraid if he released the record that it would turn out that there'd be a band in North Carolina or South Dakota or God knows where called the drivers and that they'd get sued and mm. there'd be problems, this, this kind of thing. 
So he said, if you change the name of the band, then, yeah, we'll put it out. And Dukowski was present at that meeting. And neither of them said, well, why don't you just call it a blow and sell record? Neither of them said that. And, and I didn't say that. And I wouldn't have considered it at that time. I mean, to me, Blood in the Saddle was me and Ron and Herman and Ed. It, was, right. it took a while for me to say, wait a minute. Uh, I was the guitar player. I was the singer. I was the songwriter. I can do Blood in the Saddle without them. It won't be the same, but I can do it. But I couldn't have done that at that time. It took a couple years for me to to feel confident that that was possible for me to do that. So the upshot of it was that the driver's EP for Bump never got released and the driver's LP for SST or Enigma never got released. However, some of those songs showed up later on other Blood on the Saddle records, either in the original recording or in a re-recording. I see. The cover art for Fresh Blood was done by Mary Rogers. Did you have anything to do with that? Did you know Mary? Mary Rogers and her husband, Bill, were business partners of mine at Rehearsal Studio in Los Angeles around the time of all this SST driver's drama. I see. And Mary was a talented artist. And she would sit at the desk, she would sit at my desk in my office and doodle. And she drew a drawing of a dead cowboy in a Cadillac driving across the desert and threw it in the trash. And I picked it up out of the trash and I looked at it and I said, this is our album cover. <laughs> do, do something with this. Right. Develop this, add some color work on it and she had she had literally thrown it away i literally picked it up out of the trash because hmm. it because she was just doodling you know it has a kind of cartoonish feel about it yeah it's a great cover it is yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes it's iconic yeah it is i do have to go back and ask you about dead hippie very briefly because we've talked about dead hippie because of simon's connection to chuck and worm what can you tell me about your time in Dead Hippie? I'm assuming Simon was in the band at the same time as you were. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, he was the band. Yeah. He was the Dead Hippie. He was Simon's band. Do, are there recordings of that lineup? Yes. I don't have any live recordings. I have rehearsals. That the sound quality is very poor. But I have one studio recording, which it's a it's a rockin' song. It's, it's Sex Pistol-ish, hmm. but it's, 1981 Hollywood punk rock and it sounds like it and, and I'm proud of it yeah you know I've been singing was great and I'm doing this kind of punk rock guitar I don't know the songs are right in the summer of 81 uh, right around the time I first met Annette Solinskis like within probably a week one way or the other I answered an ad for a band seeking guitar player saying punk rock band and I had no idea how to play punk rock and I didn't even like punk rock but I wanted to try I wanted to see well you know what's that like you know and so I 
talked to them and we got together and they immediately recognized that I knew all about playing the guitar and I didn't know a goddamn thing about punk rock. Right. So the bass player said, go see the Circle Jerks play the whiskey this weekend and watch what Greg Hetson does and then you'll have more of a clue as to what we need you to do if you're going to play with us. And so I did that. And then I went back and I said, okay, I, I, I think I understand it a little bit more. It's hard for me to like unlearn all the musical styles I've already been working on and do something new. But, but I, I have an, I, you know, I kind of, I kind of get the idea right. of what of what's required, you know. So then I started rehearsing with them, and we played some gigs. I think we played with the Angry Samoans. I think we might have even played with the Circle Church. But Simon was such a chaotic person, and the bass player was a Canadian who was extremely left-wing and very uh, anti-American, but then what the hell was he doing here, you know? So we couldn't really keep a drummer. At one point, we had the drummer from the Mau Mau's, Paul Morris. Right, yeah. And that's who's playing drums on this recording I'm talking about. So the recording is the drummer from the Mau Mau's, the bass player and singer from Dead Hippie, and myself. Oh, wow. And it's a rockin' song. And Rodney on the Rock used to play it on the radio, and Annette and me used to sit around my apartment and listen to it. And a couple of years later, Dead Hippie made an album, and they did not do a remake of that song okay. on the album. But I was not the right guitar player for them. And I remember, you know this song off the New Alliance record called Ghost on My Heart? It was also on the Hell Comes Your House right. record. It's a London Settle song. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, yeah, I am, yeah. Well, I remember one time playing that song for Simon at a Dead Hippie rehearsal, and he just laughed at it. Let me ask you this. For for people who want to get, you know, explore what you did after Fresh Blood, which album, where should they start? What are you most proud of that you've you've done since then? There's a number of releases. Some of them are available digitally. I, I believe there's stuff that's still yet to come out, some unreleased stuff maybe. The album that followed Fresh Blood was called More Blood. Right. It was released in Holland and in Europe in 1993. And it's a collection of recordings I did between Fresh Blood and More Blood. So it's the record that I took the most time to make, and we toured Europe for seven months on that album. Wow. Does that give you some idea <laughs> that maybe it has some musical merit if for we sure. toured a whole continent for seven months on one record? I mean, obviously, you know, we were building on the previous ones, you know, it wasn't like that record came out of nowhere, you know. Yes. 
But I'm proud of that record. More Blood has got some Indians fighting on the front. And then one of the tours we did in Europe, in Amsterdam, we recorded a fifth album called New Blood. And then that got released. And then we toured Europe some more to promote New Blood. After that, so this by this time, this would be about the late 90s, we did another album called Flesh and Blood, which was released uh, by a Hamburg label called One Million Dollar Records. And that was the last... Oh, and in between, we did an EP for an American label called Kill Rock Stars. Do you know them? Yep. And then after that, I made an album called Blood Alcohol, which the world has never heard. I made a solo album called Pure Blood, which was temporarily up on streaming services, but got pulled because we were going to add another song to it. That album's under your name? Yeah, Yeah. I argued against that. then Then we made one called The Mud, The Blood, and The Beer, which was in about 2008. And that's the one that's supposed to appear on streaming services any day now. It's supposed to be up like weeks ago. Okay. And it's being held up because we covered I Fought the Law on it and the copyright holder has to sign off on it. I see. So that should be up any day. And then after that, we made an album called True Blood which was in 2013. Well, we'll, and, we'll definitely uh, watch for that stuff. Greg, thanks well, so much. <laughs> thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for your interest. I, I, you know, if I was going to say any final statement, I would like to point out that over the years, I've had a lot of really talented help. I'm the only original member of the band, right? but I've had some damn good players. Annette could sing like a bird. Herman sang great harmony. Ron was a monster upright player. Subsequent to them, I've had some damn good bass players and some damn good drummers. And I had something to do with the musical ideas, but you need other people to execute them. That's true. You yeah. understand? Yeah, for sure. And the guys I've got now... They're great players. Dave Slapier is the drummer. Al Garcia is the bass player. And last night we rocked like men, you know, or at least I thought we did, you know. Right on. Thanks a lot, Greg. You're welcome, man. Thanks for your interest. Nice one. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, thanks for being a guest, Greg. Great having having Greg on. A lot of the stuff that I pulled out was from Annette's chapter in John Doe and Tom DeSalvia's book, More Fun in the New World. She has a whole chapter in there. I think I mentioned this previously on the podcast. I have the audiobook version of that, and she reads it, so it's really good. And we've seen Annette previously uh, as Switchblade Susie in the Love Doll Superstar movie, and also uh, she made an appearance in Desperate Teenage Love Dolls. Yeah, great singer. Yeah, she is good. So Annette was... Um, in the band The Bangs before they became The Bangles. So she played on the Getting Out of Hand 7-inch, 1981, the Real World 12-inch EP in 1983, which you bought for me, Ryan. Do you remember that? 
What? Yeah, you bought it for me on eBay a long time ago. I had to have it because it's got this awesome song on it called Want You that's on the movie Thrashin' that I've always just loved. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I can't. Oh, my gosh. That's a good memory. Is that? When did I do that for you? Like when nobody had personal computers and there was no (laughs) such thing as Discogs. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's I mean, I was a. I was an early adopter when it came to completing my record collection on eBay. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Sorry. I'm getting my records confused, though. Uh, the real world world is just a 12-inch EP. It, the record you bought for me is the self-titled EP, which came out in 1983. Hmm. And you can hear all of this stuff, by the way, on Omnivore Records' awesome compilation, Ladies and Gentlemen, which includes all of these tracks and a bunch of demos Oh, and one thing I wanted to mention in the spiels, Ryan, is um, David Roback passed away this week from Opal. Oh, yeah, I saw that too. Yeah. Good call. we got to mention that. Condolences to his friends and family and uh, to his bandmates. Anyways, uh, David Roback actually wrote some of those songs, uh, early Bangle songs, Call On Me, uh, Bitchin' Summer, and Speedway were all co-written with David Roback. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, there was definitely a, a lot of outpouring of uh, recognition for how influential he was. Like even uh, Dino or Jay Maskus had a big spiel on his uh, page as yeah. well. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so Annette grows up listening to rockabilly and country. And like I said, a lot of this is from the, the More Fun in the New World book. Uh, she's singing along in her bedroom and she joins the, joins the bangs on bass despite having no experience on the instrument. Uh, she first meets Greg Davis at an X concert, which she describes in the book as a total revelation. And then she met Greg again through a recycler ad that he had placed, which read something along the lines of Black Flag and the Ramones meets Robert Johnson and X at the crossroads along with Johnny and June Cash standing at the side of the road. She says in the book, his playing was so intense that it was actually a little frightening. And he becomes her first boyfriend. uh, And then she starts her kind of career with the bangs. And it's happening really fast. The band is super ambitious. Annette wanted to sing in the bangles, uh, which she wasn't. Uh, Greg's starting to get frustrated. He wants to get his career going. And she starts feeling... Like she's in two worlds. She's touring with the Bangles, doing all these interviews. Um, They're starting to get fitted for these custom outfits and shoot videos. And then the other world is she's singing bluegrass with her boyfriend living on rice and beans and kind of living this, the life of a tortured artist when she's, you know, back at home. And it's important to point out that she was still in her teens. So, you know, this was a... I think a lot for a teenager to take in, you know, this kind of rapid success that the Bangles were having. So the Bangles are out on the road opening for the English beat, and while she's gone, Greg starts a trio with Herman Sinak on drums and Ron Batello on upright bass. She says in the book, their music sounded like a locomotive going 100 miles per hour. And then she comes back to L.A. from this tour, and here's a soundboard tape of uh, Blood on the Saddle, and says she was really jealous. Um, she wanted to be a part of this new musical movement coming up from the underground. Uh, there's a lot of instability in their relationship. It's very tumultuous. I think a lot of that revolves around her 
kind of being in the Bengals. I think in our interview, Greg kind of expands on what happened following Annette's final show with the Bengals, uh, and she joins Blood on the Saddle the next day. And then they put out a track on this album, Hell Comes to Your House, Volume 2, which came out in 1983 on Enigma Bemis Brain Records, which we've talked about before, Jimmy Bemis of Modern Warfare. And this has got a bunch of bands on it, the Joneses, the Mau Maus, Tex and the Horseheads, the Minutemen doing a early version of Corona, Screaming Sirens, which was Pleasant Gaiman's band, and that Bemis Brain we've talked about because they released the first Leaving Trains record, Well Down Blue Highway, and also the Nip Drivers LP. Yep. Then they do Blood on the Saddle, uh, self-titled album 1984, which is New Alliance Records 15. There is a digital version of it up on Spotify, and I'm assuming iTunes and stuff, uh, with almost a full album of alternate mixes. Uh, It's got these tracks off of the Hell Comes to Your House Volume 2 compilation on there, if anybody wants to hear them. They're playing a lot of shows with bands like The Meat Puppets, Lone Justice, Rank and File, Tex and the Horseheads. In the uh, book, she refers to this scene many, many times as cowpunk, which I thought was interesting because Greg, in our interview, definitely took exception to to that term. Yeah, it seemed to be okay to say punkabilly, but not cowpunk. Yeah. And then they released this album called Poison Love in 1986 on Chameleon Records in the United States, Stiff and New New Rose in the UK. Greg didn't seem to like it too much. I like it a, a lot. It's got kind of a Tex-Mex vibe to it almost. There's a song on there called Promise Your Heart to Me, which you can watch a video they shot for on YouTube where they're driving around on a flatbed truck through like the city. And that's pretty cool. The digital version of this also has tons of outtakes, uh, which are really cool to check out. So back to the book, to Annette's book, a chapter in the book. She says, we had gotten back from a tour that didn't go well. The weather was freezing, the driving endless and miserable. Audiences didn't respond well to the band and her and Greg broke up and Annette quit the band. The kind of scene that they were part of is starting to wind down. And this is something you hear a lot of in the book. Uh, The L.A. hair metal scene is starting to kind of take over in L.A. It kind of reminds me of a lot of the sentiment you hear from, like, the first wave punk bands in L.A. when hardcore came in. Yeah. Is they kind of, a lot of the people from the scene went away and did other stuff because it was, you know, they weren't into that. They crossed over. Yeah. Some of them did. Yeah, man. Lots did. It's true. TSOL. Okay, so here's um, some of what happened next. Annette formed a band called Weatherbell. Uh, she was in the Ringling Sisters. She was in Medicine. Uh, she's now back in the Bangles. And if you want to learn more about um, what Annette did next, you should check out that podcast I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Paisley Stage, Raspberry, and Rhyme. They have a really great interview with Annette, where she talks about a lot of this stuff that she did after Blood on the Saddle. And she talks about Blood on the Saddle, too. She also played some shows with with Blood on the Saddle in 2002 and again in 2006. Yeah. Greg, as he mentions in the interview, started a band called The Drivers before reforming Blood on the Saddle. And they've released many albums. 
uh, with many different line, lineups, including at one point Cesar Vizcarra from the Stains and DC3 on bass. And here's something I didn't know when I talked to Greg, or else I would have asked him about it for sure. He toured as a guitarist in the Vandals in 1989 yeah. and 90. I'm assuming that this was for their amazing cowpunk album, Slippery When Ill, which is hands down the best cowpunk album that I'm aware of. I just love it. Um, it was later re-released in like 1999 as the Vandals play really bad original country tunes. Uh, <laughs> but there's a few key, key tracks missing on that compilation and you really need to track down Slippery When Ill. It's just awesome. Uh, Ron Batello and Herman both played in the supergroup called The Loafin' Hyenas. Yeah. They have a great full length on New Rose and a couple of singles on Sympathy for the Record Industry in around 1989 through 91-ish. And Rob Ritter of, well, he played in The Gun Club on Fire of Love and Miami. He played in the Alice Bag Band. And he's also known as Rob Graves, you know, on the 45 Grave album Sleep in Safety with Paul Rossler. He's in The Loaf and Hyenas, as is Tex Edwards from The Nerve Breakers. He also played in a zillion other projects, many on Sympathy for the Record Industry. There's a great comp called Intexicated, which compiles many of his better tracks. Uh, so The Loaf and Hyenas are really cool, if anybody wants to check them out. Herman played in a rockabilly band called The Bee Pickles, which I've never heard, but they had an album on Dionysus in 1993. He played, or possibly still plays, I'm not sure if they're still together, in a newer band called The Guilty Hearts. They have a few albums on Reverend Beatman's Voodoo Rhythm Records. And he played in a band called Crowbar Nation with Peter Andrus, who we'll be getting to soon on the next Divine Horseman LP. And they had a Single 12-inch EP on Sympathy for the Record Industry in 1989, Crowbar Nation. A couple of things I pulled out from the interview with Greg that I was really interested in. This notion that he wanted to pervert country and western and bluegrass the same way X did with Rockabilly and the Gun Club did with blues music. I thought that was an interesting perspective. I think he says in the interview something like, bluegrass is fast, just like punk rock. Yeah, I thought, I mean... I mentioned this right at the outset of the show, but I thought him talking about how powerful or how influential the gun club were was really interesting. Yeah, for because, sure. I mean, you hear that and there are a lot of gun club fans out there, but to hear it right from someone and, and then just pick it up on their record um, as you're listening to it is, uh, is very cool. Yeah. I loved talking to him about dead hippie too i'm kind of a little bit obsessed with with that dead hippie record so <laughs> like he didn't play on that obviously but he was in the band so still counts yeah you want to talk about these tracks ryan let's do it history lesson part two okay so this uh record came out on cassette and lp on sst and then on new rows in the UK, it came out on LP and CD, and the CD combines this album and the previous one, Poison Love, the New Rose one. So, wait a second. You've got Poison Love on New Rose, hey? My copy is on Chameleon Records. Yeah, that's the US version. 
Okay. Yeah. It says uh, on the back, too, I don't know if you checked this out, but it says um, Bed of Roses dedicated to D. Boone on the back of that Poison Love record. Oh, I missed that. It's cool hearing Greg talk about his relationship with D. Yeah. Yeah, Annette talks about it lots in, in the book, too. Yeah. Okay, track one on this Fresh Blood album. Born with a Hole in My Pocket, written by Greg. This song, Ryan, could be my theme song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I listened to many times this week the SST LP version of this song. And then also the digital version. So I don't know if you oh. picked it up from the interview, but Greg is adamant that the SST version, um, he, he does not like it. He thinks the, the digital version is the definitive version, the one he wanted to put on the LP. Myself, I honestly don't hear a huge difference between the two. Both are awesome. Uh, I think there's no Annette on backing vocals on the digital one, but she's so like low in the mix on the SST one that I didn't really hear a huge difference if I'm being honest really speedy bluegrass style flat picking a la Doc Watson and Clarence White Uh, only he does it on a telly instead of a an acoustic guitar like those guys did and if I was watching some videos and he's he plays a telly in all of them and it looks like it's a little bit souped up he's got like a, a humbucker on the neck pickup, and then like, a like a Seymour Duncan or a Demarzio single coil on the, on the bridge pickup. Yeah, it's definitely been modified because it looks like a, it doesn't look like a brand new telly. Yeah, it looks it looks like it's worn out even in the early eighties. I'm wondering, Ryan, if you not worn out, sorry, broken in. I'm wondering if how many times when you were listening to especially Greg soloing, you thought of Dallas and Travis Good from the Sadies. A ton. Yeah. A ton, man. Like, this guy has got a style that's been aped all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if our American listeners are as aware of the Sadies. I mean, they tour internationally, but they play Canada a lot, and they're really speedy flat pickers a lot like this. They might be one of Canada's best live bands for the last 20 years easy for sure easy yeah the song born with a hole in my pocket is just totally awesome straight into help wanted written by greg this is kind of the classic country theme of being out of work and destitute sung by greg more insane guitar picking from greg yeah he definitely doesn't doesn't seem like he gives himself that much credit for but he's a pretty dang good player at this point in time yeah he's awesome Track three, Always There, Never Here, written by Annette. This is the closest to a punk song on the album. It kind of, I thought, when every time I listened to it, I thought Minor Threat does country. <laughs> it's just the way she kind of barks the the verses out. Really reminded me of Ian MacKay, actually. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I never thought of that. Yeah, she does vocals on this one. Track four, Endless Highway, written by Greg. Total highlight for me. Just awesome. This is one of the ones Greg did to beef up the album, which he mentions in the interview. So they were short on tracks. Uh, Even with the two he added on the album, though, it's still only 23 minutes long. It's a very short album. This is kind of a cowboy lament 
Greg's vocals are just stellar on this, a real highlight for me. Yeah, it's high up on the list for me too. It's a real standout. To think that it was, you know, a late edition yeah. is a mind blower for how good it is. Yep, track five, Rawhide, written by Tyomkin and Washington. Dimitri Tyomkin and Ned Washington, to be more specific. They wrote this as the theme song to the 1965 Western TV show, Rawhide. It's been covered a number of times, most notably by the Dead Kennedys for me. Yeah. I like this version a lot. Uh, It's the better of the two covers on the album, in my opinion. And this one, I think he mentions in the interview, was recorded for a, originally recorded for like a French compilation album. And then we flip it over already, and we're on to Annette's awesome song, Burning Sun. Uh, She sings this one and does harmonica, which she plays well. She also does some harmonica in the bangles they do a cover of uh, the Lottie Dawes song how is the air up there which she plays harmonica on uh, this one has a very memorable hook in the chorus yeah the first two tracks on side two are pretty solid yeah the next one for me for sure black river also written by annette this one's great cool lyrics killer vocal from annette love the open tuning and Greg's just tearing it up on the slide, showing that Dwayne Allman influence that he talks about. Yep. Uh, there's pics of Annette on the back of the LP playing guitar live with the band. So, Yeah, she doesn't get credit on the back, but she's holding a white telly. Yeah. But uh, she's also rocking the harmonica, yep. otherwise known as the... Honking on the bobo? boy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, track three, Baptist Church Blues Part 1, written by Greg. This is the other one Greg did to flesh out the album. Weird that all of these are, there's no co-writes any, anywhere, considering they were a couple, you know? These are all solo writing credits. Love the trem on the guitar for this one, and the kick drum, and Greg's awesome vocal. And he, he does some like killer falsetto in this one. And then we go to Baptist Church Blues Part 2, also written by Greg. He sings this one with real conviction. The Baptist Church will teach you to fear and dread. Don't think for yourself, they'll think for you instead. Ouch. Yep. And then we wrap the album up with Folsom Prison, written by Johnny Cash, of course. I don't suppose this track had been done to death in 1987, but it certainly has since then. And I honestly don't care if I ever hear another version of this song. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, everyone's done it. That's for damn sure. Yeah. The cool thing here is Ron starts the song on the bass. I don't think we've really talked about the other two musicians, but uh, Annette says in her book, she goes, Ron just slapped the shit out of that bass. He had his own fan club live, like his own group of people that would you know, come and stand in front of him. And he used to tape his fingers up in gaffer tape because he, you know, he played so hard. Although on the back of the album, he's playing an electric bass. Yeah, both Annette, Greg, and Ron are playing tellies on the back. This song has, one. they do one thing in this song and a few others that is an, a, a minor annoyance for me is they yell yee-haw. <laughs> if you're not going to be into cowpunk, why say yeehaw? Yeah, it kind of makes it a little hokey. Yeah, it does. 
I, I know what you're saying. It kind of, it could detract from it, but yeah. it's the overall aesthetic at the time, I think. Yeah. And then there's an extra track on the digital version called Julie, which is catchy as hell. Uh, the best part of that song is Greg's solo, honestly. It's really good. Overall, I don't think Blood on the Saddle gets enough credit for kind of blazing a trail. They definitely blazed a trail. And one one thing that was coming to my mind when I was listening to these, re- well, I listened to the first three records a number of times so this I. week because yeah. I've got them I've got them handy here, you know. Yeah. And I've got a couple more of the later ones, um, but I basically listened to the first three, and they definitely blazed a trail. But what came to my mind is we actually mentioned this like at the er, at the outside of the show about. Like you were way into garage in the '90s, and I dabbled. I also dabbled in psychobilly, rockabilly, that type of stuff, and I kind of got enough of it in the '90s when there was that big resurgence, you know. Yeah. And I kind of wish, when all that stuff was getting huge, Blood in the Saddle got their due because yeah. I don't know. There just seems to be a little bit more authenticity to the blood on the saddle stuff and i wonder if it would have stuck with me longer had i gotten into it back then instead of more recently i don't know i hear you on the rockabilly thing in particular and a lot of that for me is like the whole culture that goes along with rockabilly because it's so prevalent now to see people dressed like that and stuff it's kind of like done to death you know but I don't really think of rock, uh, Blood on the Saddle as a rockabilly band. I compare them more to some of the bands that would be on, say, Bloodshot Records or something. Look, look, I I agree with you. I guess all I'm saying is there are definitely rockabilly bands that have a similar feel, a similar rhythm, um, similar tempo to some of the tracks that are on these Blood on the Saddle records. Yeah. One thought I had is you hear a lot of people talk about, or we've probably talked about, the Shredders on SST. Greg Ginn, Kurt Kirkwood, uh, Jay Maskus. I'm going to throw Greg Davis in there, man. Yeah, he definitely deserves a mention, that's for sure. Yep. He can uh, he can pick with the best of them. How about the, uh, the album artwork? Yeah, it's really great. Um, great story in the interview about... Uh, how it was generated some great pictures on the back of the lp yeah it's hard to believe this album cover was picked out of the trash hey yeah great pictures on the back i agree greg's flying the flannel we got telly's to the left of me telly's to the right of me love that pick guard on ron batello's base oh yeah that's a uh with the maple fretboard and everything like that that's that's a pretty uh iconic looking Telly P base. Yeah. Solid, solid hunk of wood there for sure. But it is funny that um, didn't have the upright going, hey? Yeah, it's weird. Maybe on tour, you know? Like maybe it was just too much. Yeah, maybe. That would have been a shame to not get the full meal deal. Any uh, dead wax on this one? I don't think so, hey? No. There is, uh, hang on. There's just. Um, just like serial numbers and stuff, and then a K disc, JG. That's it. John Golden. You know what? Though I didn't check. Should we check the previous two records? Sure. Why not? Hey, maybe there's a a message that we need to give to the people to compensate 
for missing it on Ifin. All right, so on the self-titled New Alliance record, no dead wax. I'm betting there's none on Poison Love then. They're not really a dead wax kind of band, are they? Mm, I don't know. Do you need to be that type of band or do you need to have that type of lacquer cutter? Yeah, maybe. Nothing on Poison Love. All right. Missed opportunity there. The other thing that they have on the back of the album cover is they've got those neat little western symbols next to each track like a cactus or a a bottle of moonshine oh yeah yeah we've got those and um back cover photos by david herman should give david some cred there um and then it says graphics mary rogers ranch style that's about it for uh, the jacket ballot result ballot result ballot result I'm going to uh, cut to the chase from my perspective. I'd actually go with Endless Highway, to be honest. I know it's not really, you know, representative of Blood on the Saddle, but it's hands down probably my favorite track. I really like Born with a Hole in My Pocket uh, and Black River, too. Yeah, you pick. Well, geez, you know, I think we're going to go with Born with a Hole in My Pocket because it's got the full band on it. Yeah, it's a good opener. Well, thanks, Greg, for uh, coming on the show. Great to have you on and get all that history and uh, connect some more dots for the Mojack people. Yeah, for sure. Ryan, what's next week? Next week is SST 117. It's our first record from HR, the Human Rights Self-Titled Record. Very cool. Right on. Looking forward to it. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.